From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. If we have a conversation about healthy foods and they don't involve conversations about capitalism, then I'm just not interested in them anymore. This week on our show, a conversation with Marsha Chatlam about her research on the historic role of McDonald's franchising in the Black community. We join a holiday cookie-baking workshop at a food pantry, plus Jackie B. Howard unrolls the cabbage roll for a winter weeknight meal plan. All that and more coming up in the next hour here on Earth Eats, so stay with us. from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Kate Young, thanks for joining us for Earth Eats. Our first stop today is a baking workshop at a local food pantry. This story was recorded last year when groups of kids and families could fill rooms and mix cookie dough and shape cookies together without the fear of spreading a deadly virus. I know we all miss those days, and I hope we can soon return to a time when workshops and kids' cook sessions can happen in person again. But in the meantime, I still like the idea of cookie baking around the holidays, and in particular, this season. If you celebrate a winter holiday, and you're used to gathering with friends and family, maybe this year you could bake up some extra goodies and send them to a loved one far away. Or you could even drop off a care package on the porch of a friend or a family member nearby. Handmade gifts are my favorite gifts. And if you have kids in your household, baking can be a nice way to get them involved in gift-giving traditions. Making cookies is a great thing to do with kids of all ages. You can keep it simple or go all out. And even the youngest child can usually pour a cup of flour into a bowl or cut a shape from some rolled out cookie dough. Georgia O'Connor and Alyssa Weiss are nutrition and youth educators at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard in Bloomington, Indiana. The Hub, as the locals call it, is a food pantry and community food resource center that offers regular garden and cooking workshops for children and adults. That is, when there's not a pandemic going on. They've got a spacious teaching kitchen, and last year they offered a special pre-holiday cookie baking workshop just for kids. 
About 10 young bakers and a handful of parents lined the edges of the tall metal tables in the classroom. They had rolling pins, baking sheets, and measuring cups at each station. They taught three different recipes with some of the steps done ahead of time to move things along. So we're going to start by making the modern sugar cookie. To save time, we made the dough ahead, but this is a very basic cookie recipe, and we'll send it home with you. Alyssa taught the pinwheel recipe, which included specific skills and techniques. We're going to start by measuring our chocolate. We need two ounces of chocolate, so we're going to use our scale. And we're going to measure out two ounces. Use a double boiler. Has anyone used a double boiler before? And then we're going to put a pot on top. Does everyone get a chance to see the water? They accomplished a lot in those two hours. And by the end of the class, each family went home with freshly baked cookies, plus some dough and instructions for finishing at home. All right, what are the favorites? Peanut butter? One, two, three. Cookies! <laughs> After the smoke cleared and the interns were finishing the last of the dishes, I sat down with the two instructors. My name is Georgia O'Connor, and I am the youth educator here at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. What was happening in here today? A lot of kids baking a lot of cookies. Kids with their hands in the dough and kids using their hands to mix up cookie dough, rolling cookie dough, learning new techniques like baking skills such as leveling off and sifting two different ways, whether you use a sifter or a whisk. The order in which you bake things, so dry ingredients separate than wet ingredients. Is this the first time you've done a cookie workshop with kids? Yes, absolutely, the first time. <laughs> so you regularly do cook with kids though, right? Yes, usually we'll do kids cook 4.15 to 5 Tuesdays and Thursdays. We usually cook vegetable-based dishes. We do some baking as well, but not as often as we do the vegetable dishes. And that's more of a drop-in program, so it's yes. a little bit quicker, too? Yes. So you wouldn't have time for a big baking project? No, we try to keep the recipes for kids' cook really simple, things that you could duplicate at home quite easily and that kids could actually participate in. We just use fewer ingredients. So this was a little bit of an undertaking. Yes, it was, but it was fun, and I would do it again in heartbeat. How many cookie recipes did you make today? We made three. We made modern sugar cookies and peanut butter cookies, and then our last was a Chicago pinwheel cookie. Can you tell me anything about the peanut butter cookie recipe? That peanut butter recipe has been around for a long time. I was about 21 years old, and I found it on the back of a Domino's sugar box. <laughs> Wasn't much of a cook then, but I loved that recipe. It was chewy and crisp at the same time. And so it's one of my favorite. And it calls for like a cup of peanut butter, which makes it even better. <laughs> so you've stuck with that all this time. Stuck with it. Haven't changed a bit on it. Just doubled the batch is all I do. <laughs> Double the recipe. Why do you think cookies are a good thing to do with kids? Or either of you can answer that. I love cookies. They're hands-on. There's a lot of technique involved in them. They're really fun and easy to do with kids. They bake quickly, and they're perfect for gift-giving any time of year, and they're great. 
Could you say your full name? Yes, Alyssa Weiss. I am the education coordinator here at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. I'm wondering about the pinwheel recipe. Is this something that comes from you? Is this? Sure, yeah. I'm from Chicago, and there was an old cookie manufacturing company called Maurice Linnell. One of their cookies that they would make that was a classic was this chocolate and vanilla pinwheel cookie with these red sprinkles around the outside. They were the kind of cookies that you get in the tin with the shortbread cookie with the little cherry in the middle. And they closed down a few years ago, and so the bakery I used to work at kind of brought them back, and it reminds me of Chicago. And so there's a specific color of sprinkles on the outside. Yes, classic red-pink color. Interesting. (laughs) What is your vision or your goal for what you have in mind when you do a workshop like this with kids? Well, typically our cooking classes with kids are only 45 minutes, and so you can't do a lot in 45 minutes with kids. So one of the reasons was a longer session to do something that would be like we've done a pasta workshop for the kids, and that would take a lot longer than 45 minutes. So that was one of the reasons. We also thought that parents might stick around a little bit more, and they have. They've stuck around and started helping their kids do the cooking as well, and so that makes it kind of fun to have a family-oriented project. So, Okay, so what if somebody says, well, why are you teaching kids how to make these sweets with sugar in them and this isn't very healthy and I just feel like you should be teaching them how to cook with vegetables. We want to use fresh ingredients instead of store-bought cookies. The homemade cookies taste so much better. They're fresher. They don't have all the preservatives and I don't think I've bought a store-bought cookie in several years and part of it is just because I think they taste better and they're better for you. They're just great. And so all of the cooking lessons that happen here, they're not just focused on super healthy eating. Some of it's just about cooking. Yeah, it's about cooking and coming together and building community and using our hands and tasting and kind of associating conversation and community with eating and whole foods. Do you find it challenging to work with large groups of kids like this when you're trying to get everybody to focus on a project? It's the end of the day. They've been in school all day. Like, How is that for you? It's bittersweet. I mean, it can get chaotic and you can in your mind be like, oh, whoa, what are we doing here? But then you realize this is kids are enjoying it. They're having a good time. And this is kids having a good time. They are chaotic when they're together in community. So I love it. How do you feel about working with a group of kids? Same. I think that it can be hectic, but also very fun. And I also think to add to what Georgia said that Do I necessarily think they'll all be able to go home and start a recipe from start to finish? No, but I think it's also about building incremental skills and exposure to it and experience of doing the thing and having fun while doing it. And that is going to create a desire to continue to bake and cook, even if it's not an automatic, I've learned a thing and now I can go do it. It'll be built into their childhood and experience of cooking and baking. The other thing that I was thinking about that so many things that I've been to around the holidays where there's there's like a craft mm. or there's cookie baking and you know, Mrs. Claus's workshop and you go in it and it's usually like a store-bought cookie and you decorate it with store-bought icing. And sprinkles maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's your cookie baking. And so just to, to have this chance to do not just one, but three recipes from scratch all the ingredients. That's kind of a rare thing. Kids don't usually get that kind of experience. It's true. It's fun to 
build in these other skills that kids have of varying levels and have the kids work together too, which is always great to see an older kid working with a younger kid and learning about measurements and learning about all the other sciences associated with baking. What are some other workshops that you have coming up? Let's see, we have a pie workshop. In January, we're gonna do some winter stew workshops. We've done tortillas, popcorn, all sorts of stuff. That was Georgia O'Connor and Alyssa Weiss of Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. You'll find all of these cookie recipes, the modern sugar, the peanut butter, and the Chicago pinwheel on the Earth Eats website, eartheats.org. You can also find links to connect with Mother Hubbard's to learn more about what they're up to. That's eartheats.org. After a short break, we have a conversation with a scholar about the surprising role McDonald's franchises have played in the Black community. So stay with us. Did you know that Earth Eats has a YouTube channel? Well, we do. And my colleague Peyton Knobluck has been making some fun recipe videos of me cooking in my kitchen. I've made hand pies, carrot ginger soup, shortbread cookies, and more. You might even catch a glimpse of one of my cats. Just search for Earth Eats on YouTube. You'll find us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. For those involved in the good food, real food, and local food movements, it's easy to write off fast food, either because it's not good for you, not good for the environment, or because the industry underpays its workers, or maybe it's just not classy enough. But through the second half of the 20th century, African-American communities and civil rights organizations saw fast food franchising as a way to bring jobs and money into black communities. It's hard to imagine today that a McDonald's franchise could ever be seen as an engine of black socialism. But Marsha Chatlin, associate professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University, reminds us that African-American communities continue to be constrained and fast food has been one way to make things work. Dr. Chatlin's first book is called Southside Girls, Growing Up in the Great Migration, and her book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, was released in January of 2020. Producer Alex Chambers spoke with her via Skype in 2018, before the book was complete. Your first book was about the Chicago end of the Great Migration through the lens of black girls. Was there some sort of progression that took you from that to this? You know, the kind of bridge I often talk about in terms of my two projects is that after I finished up in graduate school and I was traveling between Chicago and Oklahoma City, where I first started teaching, and then Washington, D.C., I would spend a lot of time in my hometown of Chicago. And I always thought it was really fascinating the number of um cultural institutions or various activities that I encountered that were underwritten by the local chapter of the National Black McDonald's Operators Association. And I remember in high school, the first time I ever read anything about the Great Migration was part of a history quiz bowl TV show that I was on through my school. And I remember that it was the McDonald's operators that had paid for the prizes for the competition. And so it always was this kind of issue in the back of my head 
in terms of what does it mean for an organization of black franchise operators to not only have kind of so many footprints in a city, but what does it mean for the relationship between uh, communities of color and fast food when there are these franchise owners who are kind of like local heroes or ambassadors or well-known entities. I never thought about the fact that the rise of fast food happened right at the same time as the civil rights movement was sort of taking off. Right. So one of the things I talk about in the book, the first chapter looks at doing a critical race history of fast food and thinking about fast food and the housing market as being very similar, where there's some of the politics of redlining, there's the federal infrastructure that's allowing a lot of um, whites who are either leaving the military and using the GI Bill for business loans or who are entering franchising and they're able to be successful. Um, So franchising kind of grows up in the suburbs and becomes very popular in terms of highway transportation, right? And all of these structures are so bound by racial constructs of where funding is allocated and where it's not, who has access to houses in the suburbs and cars to drive along the interstates. And then there's this massive shift in the 1960s, after 1968, where there are all of these uprisings after the assassination of Martin Luther King, there are various hot summers, and one of the most consistent refrains, or rather responses, to uprisings is that poor communities need their own businesses, African Americans really should buy into some of the black capitalism rhetoric that reemerges in this time, and this is going to be the way forward, business. And the business that is kind of ready to pounce is the franchise industry. When gas prices started to soar, and when more and more suburban families were being discerning about how they spent money or whether they would want to fill up the car and expend gas to go to a fast food restaurant, the fast food industry really saw the inner city as the place to grow because it was a larger consumer base that walked to stores. And they also knew that putting in black franchise owners would ingratiate them to the community. And one of the things that I think is really important to note when we were talking about these things is that, you know, I don't think anyone at that moment could anticipate the size and the consequences of the fast food industry when they're trying to bring it into communities in the 1960s and 70s. But by the 1980s, it becomes very clear that there's some very complicated consequences as a result of this, but this relationship is at that point 20 years old. And so you have this kind of brokering uh, between major civil rights organizations, federal subsidies, and then a fast food industry that is just trying to gain as much ground as possible. Can you talk about those consequences that were unforeseen, that it was really, I think, are starting to become clear more, you're saying, in the 80s? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, it's interesting. When I'm looking at the early conversations about fast food, some of the critiques of the mainstream fast food industry is that, okay, you know, we really need to have our own Black-owned franchises. And so there's these attempts to create these companies that are considered authentically Black franchises. And they're not able to compete with the wealth and the the size of some of these other major ones like your McDonald's, your Kentucky Fried Chicken, your Burger King. But initially, the critique or the resistance to fast food was, will this really provide all of the things that it's promising our community in terms of wealth and investment opportunities? And if it's not, then we have to build our own fast food. But there wasn't a real kind of 
concern about it. This idea of a McJob that is low wage, you don't have the right to organize, that it's really physically taxing, that doesn't kind of enter the conversation again until the 80s. And so the critiques that we have today of the fast food industry, they are slow to develop. And I think part of the reasons why some of those critiques aren't leveraged is because people actually think it's not a bad idea that it could actually be a legitimate source of economic development and renewal because the industry in many ways was still growing as well. So I'm curious, was there a complicated conversation going on around, well, okay, we've got these McDonald's um, available to us as a way of sparking the economic engine of the, the community, but we're, it's still, you know, it's a franchise. It's owned by a corporation. So in the early days of franchising, the post-1954 franchising moment that um, characterizes a lot of McDonald's growth and its leadership under Ray Kroc, you knew who your franchise owner was because they were actually required to work in the store. So there was a way that there was a real kind of personalization of the experience of going to a McDonald's or going to a Burger King or going to a Taco Bell that fades as the industry goes. But initially, people actually, they didn't leverage those kinds of critiques about kind of corporate power because there were many ways in which a franchise could still feel very familiar and com- and connected to the community, if that makes sense, right? Like... There are some questions about, is our money going out of our community? But then there was also the sense that if we go to a Black-owned McDonald's, we're still able to support our community in some ways because a large part of the culture of franchising in local communities in these early days was about philanthropy and a lot of being very present, you know, donating Little League uniforms and doing the college scholarships and the African-American franchise owners, I think, were particularly attuned to their kind of sense of responsibility and how people in the community would view them in terms of the resources that they could bring. So, you know, some of this corporate critique emerges, but not in the kind of robust ways that you would think in light of some of the other critiques that are being made about capitalism and systems. There's this anecdote in my, in my book about how in April of 1969, Ralph Abernathy, who takes over Martin Luther King at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, he goes on kind of a, like a national tour to commemorate the first anniversary of King's death. And he stops a few weeks before his tour, he gives the speech and he says, we don't need black capitalism, we need black socialism. And, you know, everyone's like, what's going on here? And so shortly after he gives the speech, he shows up at this McDonald's in Chicago, and he picks up a check from a black franchise owner. And we could say that that act is like, you know, rife with all sorts of contradictions and questions. But I think in that particular world, there is a way that the, poss- the economic possibilities of African Americans are so constrained that they have to kind of fit to get some very basic needs met. So there is no kind of, there's no tension in the fact that, you know, Abernathy's calling for socialism, and then his organization is very excited about franchise possibilities. And so I think that, you know, I write about critiques, but a lot of the critiques are about the extent to which McDonald's particularly, because it's the first one that's doing what they called minority franchising. The critique is to the extent that they're going to be a citizen not even like a question about their citizenship in inner city America. What do you mean by the critique is that they're going to be a citizen? That it's about 
how involved the McDonald's is yes. going to be in the community. Not if they should be here. It's like, well, how are you going to fit yourself into the things that this community needs and be part of it? There's a, another anecdote about uh, Portland McDonald's, Portland, Oregon, and the local Black Panther Party is accused of bombing them. And one of the reasons that they are allegedly a target is because they won't donate to the breakfast program and they won't be a member of the community in a sense that like, this is what you're supposed to do. If you're going to be here and if you're going to profit from us, there's got to be some exchange. And a lot of the strategy that the fast food industry has to figure out is how much do you concede to these demands? How much do you give in to these boycotts? Because they know that this they're going to grow and they know that the inner city is incredibly profitable and this is a market they want to be in, but they also are very concerned about setting precedent. And so there's these different situations in which these protests, these boycotts of their stores emerge, and the boycotts are about the terms in which they are going to engage the community. Rarely are the protests about getting them actually out of the community. Right, right. And to a certain degree, those protests do make a difference, right? I mean, it seems like there is an effort by McDonald's to start to invest at a certain point in um, black ownership. Yeah, so, I mean, that's the thing. It's kind of the question of what's the goal? If the goal is more franchise owners, yeah, you can get more franchise owners. If the goal is to make sure that the franchisee is contributing, absolutely, you can get that. You know, I think that a lot of McDonald's success is predicated on this idea of knowing kind of when to get involved and when to step back and let franchise owners take the temperature of communities and figure out their relationships. But a lot of the philanthropy that is associated with McDonald's, the Ronald McDonald houses and all of these different efforts, a lot of these are done by franchise owners and not necessarily the corporation. And there's a reason for that. I think they learn very quickly that franchising works because basically someone else carries the water or takes on all the liability of your company for you. And part of what I chronicle in the book is that in the 60s and 70s, there are liabilities, quote unquote, of doing business in the inner city. There's the demands of the community, there are the expectations, and there's also some real structural issues in terms of the higher cost of doing businesses in communities that are poorer. And so all of those like issues, they are on the shoulder of the franchisee. And so a lot of what I talk about is this, this way that even within a system that allows for some African-Americans to become wildly wealthy and to have a lot of influence and power, there are still these questions about equity and fairness, even within this system, because African-Americans are ultimately constrained whether they're constrained in terms of their consumer choices or they're constrained when they're doing business, these are the constraints that everyone is trying to negotiate and maximize. And I think that if there's a takeaway from my research, it's that, you know, what do people do with constrained choices? They make it work. We've been listening to Alex Chambers interviewing Marsha Chatlin. After a quick break, we'll hear about her own relationship with fast food and her thoughts on the fight for 15.
Marsha Chatlin is an associate professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University. Let's return to Alex Chambers' interview with Dr. Chatlin. Did this, working on this, did this change your, your own relationship to fast food? Yeah, so I mean, I grew up eating tons of fast food. And it's that kind of thing that's so interesting. You know, I, I don't eat as much of it now because I'm just older and my digestive systems don't work like they used to. But um, I will, will never, I will never say that I'm an anti-fast food person. I have concerns about some of the health consequences and I have concerns about the working conditions. But I'm also, I think, increasingly just more sympathetic to the fact that the choices that people have are the choices they have. And that's fine. And I think I was maybe a little bit more compelled by some of the the kind of conversations in the healthy food movement. But if we have a conversation about healthy foods and they don't involve conversations about capitalism, then I'm just not interested in them anymore. And I think it's kind of changed the ways that I think about how we solve problems around health and nutrition. And it was important for me to write a book about the fast food industry that wasn't about food, but about all of the other things that happens. So did this lead you to any new thoughts about sort of current issues like the fight for 15, anything like that? I think that in terms of labor and thinking about the concentration of fast food in certain communities and what a job means in some communities and what a job means in others, it just it just makes me think about all of the things, all of the arguments and all of the affective work of fast food writing itself within a civil rights context and how that can be a very effective tool in resisting the demands of workers. I think about that a lot. Like, you know, I was talking to a franchise owner, and um, I visited one of his restaurants, and his manager says to me, you know, I'm one of the few people who is going to employ someone with with a criminal record. And I give people a second chance and people saying, this is like my ministry. We can, we can write that off and say, okay, this is, this person's just saying this, whatever. But I think that some people really do mean this and some people really do see the jobs that they provide as doing something really powerful. I think the problem is, is that for people who are in that orientation, we have to help them understand what justice really looks like. And so I think sometimes I think about, I mean, it's this thing I often say to my students, like we always think that that advertising works on everyone but us because we're smarter than the advertising. But when we think about how this industry has created wealth that then helps pay for historically black colleges and universities to have scholarships and then provides opportunities for sports and then says, like, if you just keep on working at this industry, maybe one day you'll make it like I will. Like, even in my most cynical moments, I get how people are really moved by that. And the question is, for those of us who have a different vision of justice and opportunity, what are we going to provide that is as compelling and as effective so that people will believe us when we say that another world is possible? That was producer Alex Chambers interviewing Marsha Chatlin, Associate Professor of History and African American Studies at Georgetown University. Her book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, was released earlier this year.
The coronavirus pandemic is just the latest in a string of newly discovered, highly infectious diseases. Many of them start in animals and can have just as big of an impact on our lives, even if they don't jump to humans. Brian Grimmett reports for Harvest Public Media on how the agriculture industry is using lessons learned from COVID-19 to prepare. Emerging infectious diseases, like the coronavirus, don't just threaten humans. They're also a major threat to the chickens, pigs, and cattle that become food for billions of people. If a foreign animal disease, such as foot and mouth, African swine fever, or one we've not even discovered yet made it to the U.S., it would cost the U.S. economy billions, if not trillions, of dollars. We have a lot of movement of animals. We have integrate, very integrated uh, systems and uh, disease could spread very easily. That's Jack Scher. He's the Associate Administrator for Emergency Program Planning, Response and Security at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He says there's a lot his agency can learn from the U.S. response to the coronavirus, mainly that an emergency response to an infectious disease requires a lot of equipment and scientists to be in place before it happens. No one likes to pay for all the response capabilities when nothing happens. But then when it happens, people look at each other and say, why didn't we, why weren't we better prepared? But the coronavirus isn't the first wake-up call for the agency. In 2015, a highly infectious strain of avian influenza wreaked havoc on the chicken and turkey industry in the upper Midwest. In total, more than 50 million birds died from or had to be euthanized because of the disease. It also resulted in trade restrictions that caused more than a billion dollars in lost export revenue. They are devastating diseases. That's why we want to keep them out. And that's our goal. A big part of that strategy involves the Department of Homeland Security, which supports several important research laboratories such as Plum Island Animal Disease Center in New York State. Bob Burns leads one of Homeland Security's science and technology divisions. He says people shouldn't be surprised if a foreign animal disease shows up. In fact, they should be surprised more haven't already. It's always a threat. It's the, the potential for emergent threats, emergent diseases, future diseases is, is real. And we need to pay attention to that. He says, just as we've seen with the coronavirus outbreak, a key to stopping a foreign animal disease will be quickly identifying what it is and where it's been. But you can't have a diagnostic test ready if you're not already studying or aware of the disease. That's why DHS is currently constructing a $1.2 billion facility in Manhattan, Kansas, known as the National Bio and Agro Defense Facility. When up and running in 2022, it will be one of only four labs in the world that can work with large, live animals and highly infectious, deadly diseases for which there aren't vaccines. As hard as the USDA and Homeland Security work to prevent a disease from reaching the United States, the first to recognize an actual outbreak will likely be the farmers, ranchers, and feedlot operators that are in constant contact with thousands of animals every day. Brandon Deppenbush is the vice president of cattle operations for Innovative Livestock Services. It operates eight feedlots in Kansas and Nebraska. At his feedlot in Great Bend, Kansas, he says caregivers perform a health check on every pen at least once a day. So that would mean one caregiver gets in each pen and we'll go around and make sure we get every animal up, walk them around and look at them visually and make sure that they don't have any signs or symptoms of any kind of disease and look for same thing we look for in our kids runny nose you know a depressed look and that type of stuff 
Deppenbush says he thinks about the consequences of a foreign animal disease outbreak almost every day. It's why he's participating in the Secure Beef Supply Program. It's a coordinated effort between the USDA and a few states, including Colorado and Kansas, to help train and prepare cattle, pork, and poultry operations on disease response plans. Yes, it's a plan sitting on the shelf. We want to make sure that it stays on the shelf, but at the same time, when it times to do, they can open the book and say, yeah, I know what I'm going to do. That's Kansas Animal Health Commissioner Justin Smith. He says in the case of an outbreak, the department's plan is aggressive. That means immediately stopping all movement of animals, tracing where infected animals have been, and setting up barriers between operations to prevent disease from spreading. And that last one is a real challenge. Deppenbush says at any one of his feed yards, they'll have as many as 75 delivery trucks enter the property every day, each one potentially carrying a disease from another lot. Yeah, at the entry gate, we would have a, uh, a checkpoint, and depending on the scenario, it would be a wash, a cleaning, and a disinfectant. So we would wash the wheels, the wheel carriage, undercarriage of any debris, and then, and then uh, disinfect them. That'll slow down the feedlots and require a lot more workers. He says that's not sustainable long-term, but it's a lot cheaper than the alternative, which is getting a call from the State Department of Agriculture telling you to euthanize 30,000 head of cattle. That might be one of the one of the things that's come out of COVID-19 is maybe now producers are saying, hmm, you know what, maybe I ought to give that a little bit more thought on our operation and what would happen if we have that. Deppenbush is also involved in an effort to create an automated cattle tracking system known as U.S. Cattle Trace, which Kansas piloted. But he says some producers are worried about government intrusion into their data, which is only shared during the emergency. Cannot talk about enhanced biosecurity plans without at least mentioning animal identification, because one without the other is not good. Plus, in 2008, Kansas started doing large-scale foreign animal disease disaster drills, multi-day exercises involving producers and several state agencies. Scarlett Hagens is the vice president of communications for the Kansas Livestock Association. She says the drills have been a huge success. They've also helped strengthen relationships between producers and the state, which will be necessary if serious measures need to be taken to stop a disease. If you're looking for a parallel, think about the debate over the mask mandate. I think the trust is there and that if something came up and this is kind of, you know, this is what would need to be done, I think that, that our producers would do the best they could to accommodate that. Kansas is unique. It's the only state currently doing drills on this scale and frequency. Smith, the Kansas Animal Health Commissioner, says it's not that the ag departments in other states aren't aware or concerned. It's that lawmakers and governors haven't made it a priority yet. And that worries him. There's really not a whole lot sovereign about those state lines. I mean, they're, they're pretty porous, and we have a lot of movement that happens across state lines, and we have a lot of businesses that happen across the state line. The plan to respond to the next foreign animal disease outbreak shares a lot in common with the recommended response to COVID-19. To stop either, you have to have systems in place to test and trace. You have to isolate the infected from the healthy, and in the end, the heaviest burden falls to state and local agencies most of which aren't nearly as prepared as they should be. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Brian Grimmett. Harvest Public Media is a reporting collective covering food and farming in the heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org.
Kate Young. Thanks for joining us for Earth Eats. Next up, we have a recipe from Jackie B. Howard. She has a history of professional cooking, and she's been on the show before. You might recall her amazing savory persimmon recipes and her meal prepping tips. Today, she's sharing a great wintertime meal based on the traditional cabbage roll. In Jackie's version, she does away with the fussy rolling up of the filling in a cabbage leaf and tops it with a flavorful romesco sauce. It's sort of an unrolled cabbage roll. Jackie also schools us on the three stages of a good bite. Let's listen. One head of organic cabbage, and I'm gonna give it like a big chunky dice. Since we're not taking the leaves off and rolling them, I still want that sort of like big leafy feel to it. So I'm gonna leave them in big chunks in my, in my saute. I've quartered the cabbage and then halved each of those quarters and cutting them into one inch chunks. Got my pan hot, um, it's ready to go, and I'm putting in about two tablespoons of olive oil. Mom would use butter for this. My mom would use butter for any time we're having cabbage. <laughs> you can do that too, but I'm gonna use olive oil. What's great about cabbage is you, it's really economical. A little goes a long way, and a whole head of cabbage is gonna make a meal for four people easily. While this is going, I've got some almonds toasting in the oven for the romesco sauce. That romesco, if you're not familiar, is a, it's a roasted red pepper sauce with almonds. And the for me, the two key ingredients for the, to make a fantastic romesco sauce is lots of smoked paprika and a good sherry vinegar. Sherry vinegar can be hard to find sometimes. Um, if you really have to sub it, you can do a sherry cooking wine and red wine vinegar, but I highly recommend seeking out that sherry vinegar and then just having it at home so you can do this whenever the mood strikes. So I've got, I'm putting in a pound of ground turkey in with that on that olive oil. Um, I'm doing some oil because the turkey is lean and I wanna make sure that it pulls out, it adds a little bit of fat um, to that turkey to pull out some flavor and uh, get a nice base for adding, when I wanna add the cabbage to it as well. Doing about a teaspoon of salt and about a teaspoon of black pepper, just right on my turkey to season it. I'm not gonna do much in seasoning it because I'm going to make the romesco sauce and I want that to be the, the main seasoning component. So for the turkey and cabbage itself, I really just need, it's really just gonna be salt and pepper. All right, while that's cooking, I'm gonna start on the romesco sauce. So I have a jar of roasted red peppers. Um, they're in olive oil. It's a 12 ounce jar. I'm gonna use all 12 ounces of this. I'm gonna drain the liquid from it and just use the peppers themselves. These peppers have a few garlic cloves in them. I'm gonna leave those as well as I've retained about two tablespoons of the olive oil from the jar. Then I'm adding two fresh garlic cloves. So I've blended that up. I love how beautiful roasted red peppers pureed together. I mean, it just is so bright and exciting. Oh, I love it so much. And then I'm gonna take some uh, flat leaf parsley. 
Um, you want to use fresh if you can. If you can't, I wouldn't use a dried parsley in this. I would just do like a dried oregano. There, there are ways to be traditional about it, and then there are ways that utilize what you have. And that's the most efficient. If you only are ever doing a recipe because you have all of the ingredients, and that's the only time you're gonna cook, then you're so rarely gonna cook, and it becomes such a stressful thing. But if you give yourself the freedom to play around and use what's available, then you'll find yourself cooking often because there's you can see far more possibility with what you have. So while I was getting the sauce prepped, my ground turkey is about cooked through. So I'm gonna go ahead and throw the cabbage in here as well while I finish the sauce. Now I'm doing it in a big Dutch oven. So I'm gonna get about half this cabbage put in at one time and then we'll add the other half. I actually like that texture difference. Some will have a little bit more bite to it than others and I prefer that. I'm adding another half a teaspoon of salt and pepper for my cabbage. I'll let that sit and saute a little bit while I finish the sauce. I've got the roasted red peppers, the garlic, the herbs. I'm gonna start with about a quarter of a cup of the almonds. It's gonna be really loud. <laughs> I'm gonna add another handful of nuts, a tablespoon of smoked paprika, and I'm gonna go ahead and put in a couple of teaspoons of sherry vinegar. Probably gonna end up at about a quarter of a cup in terms of the flavor that I like from it. It's gonna be loud again. The cabbage and turkey is uh, starting to cook down a little bit. I'm gonna go ahead and add the other half of my head of cabbage to this. Traditionally a cabbage roll is just a sort of basic tomato sauce. So we're playing around with that with the Romesco. Roasted red pepper and sherry vinegar are gonna be really good with the cabbage. Um, so it's a nice, it's a fun play. And I think also that the almonds in the sauce are gonna have a, add a really nice texture to it as well. So I'm tasting, you can see that the sauce is much thicker after our second round, but still not pasty. So good. <laughs> you wanna taste it? Yes. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah? I think it needs salt. Yeah, but maybe eating. not too much, but. Okay. All right. And we'll see how this goes once it melts with my turkey and cabbage. So I haven't put in more sherry. I also think that the smoked paprika is at a really nice level right now, and we'll see how that might need to be adjusted after it after it gets cooked in with the cabbage. So I'm putting this right into my pot with my cabbage and turkey, the ground turkey. With most good things, the longer they sit, the better, the better they taste. Those flavors meld together. Um, but I'm gonna give this a taste now and see if there's any sort of initial adjustments I wanna make to the flavor. So I think that it needs some more sherry vinegar and a little bit more salt. If I wanna add, I might add more oregano as well. Now this is very much a down-home sort of meal. It's not the prettiest thing you've ever eaten. You could pretty it up. Easily this could be deconstructed if you wanted to be fancy about it. Or you know, if you wanted to be really fancy, roll it. <laughs> it was time to taste the unrolled cabbage rolls with the Romesco sauce added to the pan. Yeah, that additional sherry vinegar really brought out the other flavors. 
the green vegetable in particular needs some sort of, it's so hearty and deep and earthy in flavor that it needs that brightness it needs that acidity to to brighten that up in the middle of the bite it really falls flat and doesn't it it's not bland but it doesn't taste like you don't feel any sort of like pop out of it it doesn't excite (laughs) it doesn't that's great yes it doesn't excite and if it's not that excite then it needs acid that's a great way to put that yes how would i know that it wasn't salt that it needed when you're tasting something there are three stages to it the first one can i taste this when i put it in my mouth can i taste it do i have some sort of like initial flavor to it if it doesn't it needs salt you want it to be flavorful exciting and then deep and warm those are the three steps of what a good bite should taste like what a good dish should taste like so just put a little bit of thought behind it i promise you will find those things too you just have to identify it for yourself and the paprika and the herbs are offering that warmth correct as this sits the nuttiness of the almonds is going to contribute to that as well the roasted red peppers are adding to the acid the roastiness of them adds to the depth so it's a it's a fun tasting is really fun (laughs) yes tasting is fun especially when you get to taste what Jackie B. Howard is making. That Romesco sauce hits all the notes in all three stages of the bite. She makes it easy for you to try it too. Find this recipe at eartheats.org. Precious food news each week. Subscribe to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a weekly note packed with food stories and recipes right in your inbox. Go to eartheats.org to sign up. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Marsha Chatlin, Alex Chambers, Jackie B. Howard, Georgia O'Connor, Alyssa Weiss, and everyone at The Hub. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Thank you.